Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Army veteran David Lewis. After six years in the infantry, Lewis went to flight school to become an Apache helicopter pilot. He flew tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm Dave Lewis. I retired out of the Army in 2019 as a CW4, and I started my uh, military career in 97. Uh, I started off as an engineer in the reserves for about a year, year and change, and then um, moved on to uh, 1st of 75th Ranger Regiment in uh, Savannah, Georgia, and then uh, 2004, started flying uh, helicopters to 2019. Some of the stuff that stands out the most is um, for those that were in in Iraq when that on the initial push around March time frame when that huge sandstorm came through. You know, at first I was like, "Hey, it's kind of you know the earth turned orange," and I'm like, "Well, this is kind of cool." And like 15 minutes later, it wasn't. So um, you're cold, tired, hungry. Um, we ran out of food, and so what little food we did have left because we couldn't get resupplied because the sandstorm was coming in. Uh, I remember poking uh, my MRE open and uh, trying to suck in the applesauce off or out of it. And you couldn't even do that because the sand just dumped on you. It didn't matter. It was, I finally gave up eating and drinking anything. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. The sandstorm was that bad. And um, I remember I was, we got done on objective and I was driving uh, to another objective uh, that another company was working on. And, um, and I'll never forget the smell of, one, just that body smell, because there's, there's bodies laying around. But then it was also coupled with just oil sleep, uh, seeping up out of the ground. And so that's one of the most vivid memories. So now it's kind of like whenever I smell oil <laughs> or, you know, um, something of like that, uh, it's something that I always think about. So um, there was a time from the ground perspective when, especially in, in Iraq, when the initial push was going through and um, it was my turn to pull RTO duties. And so I had the radio and I was listening to the air battle net and you're listening to everything that's going on because as a ground guy, um, you know, and at that level in the organization, when you're an E4, you know, you just know where you're going, you're, what you're going to shoot at. You don't really see the bigger picture a lot of times. And so listening to that and seeing just the sheer amount of power and everything that was going on outside of your little scope, it was, it was pretty cool to, to kind of see everything that was going on. So, yeah, it was kind of surprising, uh, 
looking at the coordination and stuff that was taking place, because you don't really see that just as a basic rifleman. Um, you're not really concerned about that. You're just kind of concerned about your little piece of the pie. And then as the RTO, it kind of opens up a little bit because now you're starting to work with the different entities and, and whatnot. And, you know, during the training, you're drilled in nine line uh, cast calls and, and stuff like that. But, you know, when it came down to it, the language barrier between how the Navy and the Air Force operate or the Marine Corps um, and the Army from the ground to the air, you know, uh, that nine line is very scripted and formal. And I remember the first time I called in <laughs> that I called in um, an airstrike. We didn't have a JTAC with us, so I did it. And finally, I was just like, I'm here. The bad guys are there and pretty much just do your thing. It kind of went out the window because I was just too excited, frankly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it just came down to plain English and they made it work. So at that time, we really relied heavily on uh, A-10s and we also relied heavily on uh, the AC-130s. Um, so there were times uh, we would be out on a on a convoy and, you know, those guys being the eye in the sky for us, we knew that they were coming. The, the, the Taliban or the Al-Qaeda forces were coming, but I never saw them because the Spectre gunships up ahead, the, the C-130s overhead, saw them and started engaging before I could even, you know, see them under goggles. And, uh, and they were just walking the rounds in. And the sheer amount of power that you feel when the rounds actually impact the ground um, can be felt if, for a, quite a distance, especially um, now I wasn't a pilot or I question I was a pilot when this happened. Uh, a hellfire impacted uh, outside the, uh, the FOB in Afghanistan, and it was probably about 10 kilometers away, but you could feel that that level of impact, just that all that kinetic energy, you could just feel it through the ground. Um, so it's a pretty awesome piece of firepower that the that we have. We got back from the initial push into um, Iraq. And so this would have been uh, probably about the summer of 03. And I remember we got back on a Wednesday. And I believe we were back at the ranges on that Monday. And it was kind of one of those Georgia-Florida days that it's like the sun's out, but it's pouring down rain. And I'm running down this Georgia clay uh, dirt road in, at Fort Stewart. Um, we were doing some stress shoot stuff. And I, it was just miserable because you're soaking wet. The Georgia clay is stuck to your boots. Um, and I look up, kind of stopped raining, and an Apache flew, flew overhead. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of walking. And I'm going to start flying. So... Um, a couple of days later, when I got back to the barracks, I started working on my flight packet and, uh, yeah, went from there. It was quite the culture shock. I remember we got back and there was three of us that put in our packets, um, our flight packets. We all got boarded together. And I think we pretty much all went to one was in the class ahead of me, but, um, we were all basically together going through and, and we have been together pretty much throughout our, our careers, but, um, at this point, but. It was different. It was a culture shock when you go from the sheer amount of the rigorous training and discipline and just that mentality that you have on the special operations side. And then when you switch gears and now not only are you going from the enlisted ranks into the uh, the officer side of the house, it's just now you're also going to the big army and, I, you know, which is culture shock is how I can put that. It was definitely different. So... Um, I kind of had to tone things back just a little bit. The way that the pipeline works is 
once you're, you're, you submit your packet and once you're selected, um, you'll eventually get orders to go. And then you'll go to Fort Rucker, Alabama, and you'll go through the Warrant Officer uh, Candidate School there. And that's for whether you're a pilot or a walking warrant is what we call them. Um, so those warrants that aren't pilots, they will go through that program. Um, and I don't know how long it is now. Um, things kind of change. But so you go from that program. At the end of that program, um, you become an appointed officer. So you're not a commissioned officer at that point. You're just an appointed officer um, appointed by the Secretary of the Army and your W-1. And so basically what happens is from that point, you still stay at Fort Rucker, but now you enter the pipeline for uh, flight school. So you start off flying. Um, at the time, they were still flying Hueys and uh, TH-67s. Now they're, uh, they've switched everything out now. But um, So I did all my training in a uh, TH-67 helicopter. So you start off in a, and basically we call it primary. And that is just to teach you how to fly. That's it. It's just wiggling the sticks, uh, doing different maneuvers, um, teaching you how to fly, the basics of flight. So half the day you're flying, the other half of the day you're in academics. And then once you uh, do all your check rides and you get done with that portion, then you go into the instrument phase of, uh, of training. And so that is, that was a little harder uh, for people to do um, flying solely by reference to, to the, to the flight instruments rather than being able to look outside the window. So flying in the clouds, basically. Um, and that was very similar to the primary where half your day is academics and then the other half is either in a flight simulator or in the actual aircraft, um, depending on where you're at in the training. And so once you get that done, um, then in my case, we went through what was called uh, BNAV or basic navigation. And that's when you're really just going out flying in, you know, southern Alabama with a map trying to go from point A to point B just by looking at a 1 over 50s map, 1 over 50,000th map. Um, so you're not necessarily looking at the aeronautical charts, but you're looking at the same maps that the ground guys are using. Um, and one thing I found was for, you know, most infantry guys are, are pretty good at land nav. I mean, that's <laughs> that's kind of their bread and butter. They got to go from point A to point B to get to their objective. But once you threw that infantry guy in the cockpit, one thing I noticed was the infantry guys kind of struggled a little bit because we're used to walking so fast and seeing the terrain features from below versus the people that learned how to read the map in an aircraft and fly kind of had a little bit easier time. So that one was just a little bit challenging, at least for me it was. And then after that, then they bring everybody back together. And I remember they, you graduate from that and they bring you into a big room and I didn't even realize that we had a whole nother half of the class. So while I'm in academics, they're flying. And then vice versa. And we would switch it up. So you'd never see the other half of your class. And so they bring us all together. And I think at the time I had 72 people in the class. Um, and uh, they bring us all, all into this room. And I remember on the board they had um, six Apaches listed, one OH-58 Delta, and then just Blackhawks. There was no option for Chinooks or uh, fixed-wing aircraft at the time. And so they literally just opened up the OML and they started from the top. And so the OML was based off of all of your test scores and your check rides and everything. And um, so they just started at the top and started reading off the names. And so number one pick, and I remember the top six people all, all chose Apaches. Um, I was number three, so I got the Apache, which 
um, is what I wanted. Um, the seventh person, really good, really good guy. Harris was his name, uh, former Golden Knight. He wanted the 58, so he got what he wanted, and they turned around to the rest of the class, and they said, okay, everybody else, you're flying Blackhawks. And that didn't sit well with a lot of people. Um, not to take away from any Blackhawk guys out there, but not getting the aircraft that you wanted is just kind of the, it's just kind of the way it goes. You know, all the pilots are good in their own right, but every now and then, you know, somebody would get there for like an Apache slot, but they didn't want it. And that happens every now and then. And so what you would see is they would intentionally fail out of that course because at the time what they were doing is, well, if you fail out of this airframe, it's too hard for you. So we're going to move you to another airframe that uh, it tended to move them towards the UA-60s. But to curb that, they stopped doing that. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, the guys that that went in and and worked hard during flight school and that were towards the top of the class got to pick their stuff. So they were they were generally happy. The, it was the guys that were pretty disgruntled um, were really the guys that went out and partied all the time and had had too much fun in flight school. And then, you know, then they end up getting an airframe that they didn't want. But, you know, honestly, I changed my mind gosh, probably 20 times when I was in flight school. And then once you figure out that you can't really look at the helicopter, you've got to look at the the mission that it does, that really kind of helps narrow down uh, the airframe that you want to fly. So for me as a former ground guy, I really wanted to support the guys from the air, uh, from the aspect of being being able to shoot. And so that really narrowed it down, honestly, between the, the Apache and, and the 58. Um, but then when I sat down and I looked at the different missions of what the 58 had versus, um, the Apache. Um, that's when I chose, chose the Apache. So that's really how I did it. And so once you selected that aircraft, you just, we just roll right into, uh, started the training straight away for the, for the Apache. And so it started off with, uh, academics, um, you know, just basic systems of the aircraft and it just evolved from there. And then you start going to the simulator, start learning the cockpit and the functionalities of everything. And, and then you eventually you go out to the flight line and you start flying. And, uh, so that's a, a pretty memorable experience. Your first flight in whatever helicopter you're going to fly in with mine, it was, you know, I still remember it. So it's like, uh, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. And, uh, yeah. So the guy that flew me, you know, he's still a good friend of mine today. And I stayed in touch with him throughout my career, was a mentor throughout my whole career. So, so yeah, you basically get to the Apache program and, and really you just start off, we call it contact phase and you're just flying the Apache, just learning how to fly it and wiggling the sticks and getting comfortable with it because there's a lot going on. You go from flying a helicopter that has, um, you know what, probably three or 400 horsepower engine on it to an Apache, which nowadays with the Echo model, Apache is, that's about 8,000 at max power. So huge difference um, in the aircraft. So it's definitely an advanced airframe. And so you learn how to fly that aircraft. Um, and then you just transition from days and then you go to nights, or excuse me, you go to what we call a day system or the bag. And with the Apache, this is where it doesn't matter if, you're a new pilot coming into the army or, you know, recently in the, in the past years, the uh, army disinvested in the 58 and they brought a bunch of uh, 58 pilots to fly the Apache. So some of those guys were coming over with 6,000 hours and the bag is uh, very challenging and it basically puts everybody on an even, even keel. So the bag is basically you have the monocle that falls onto your right eye 
And that allows me to see via thermal image everything that's around me. But the issue is, is you're sitting in a cockpit that has curtains pulled down, doesn't even have a pinhole of light, and it's completely black. And you can't see anything. So if you were to just look out into your cockpit, you're not going to see anything but but black. We tape up every little pinhole of light. And then uh, so you're relying solely on the monocle that's over your eye um, with a with a FLIR picture or what we call a composite video. So you have a FLIR image and then you have all your flight data overlaid on top of that. And so you're trying to fly the helicopter with that. And it's pretty difficult because there's some people that are um, left eye dominant, let's just say. And your monocles on your right eye, they struggle quite a bit with that. So basically, you work through it and you learn how to fly it. It's kind of funny watching people try to fly that way. I've uh, we'd go out to X Stage Field at Fort Rucker, and and you see people coming in and flying the aircraft sideways, thinking that they're flying straight. <laughs> so it's it's uh it, it really takes a couple hundred hours, honestly, to to get good at flying with that monocle and the flare. So you make it through that phase, and then you go into nights. And so that what that bag phase did is it prepped you to go out and fly at night. And so now you have the visual acuity of your left eye as well as the FLIR image that's in your right eye. That's fairly challenging uh, to do because now you're looking unaided with one eye and you're looking aided um, with your other eye. So you make it through that and then you finally get to the gunnery phase, which is where you actually learn to the basics of employment of the aircraft. And so when I say basics, I mean, you're not doing a lot of maneuvers. It's more learning how to shoot the aircraft, employ the weapon systems. And then at that point, you're done finally. And so generally, that it's about a two-year process, probably a little bit longer now, I think. But yeah, it's definitely a journey. You know, obviously, we, we break loose and we would go down to Panama City and all that stuff and, and uh, see how much we could get away with. Um, a lot of drunken nights and <laughs> drunken parties. But, um, you know, we would always screw with the instructors. Um, when we could, I remember there was one instructor that was retiring and, and it was around Christmas time and nobody wanted to fly. Right. I think this was the last flight before we went off on Christmas Exodus. So before we, uh, went to go take off, we handed out, uh, you know, the little bottles of Jack Daniels, this instructor did because he was leaving. It was his last day. And, uh, so of course we all took the shot and the other instructors flipped out because now you can't fly obviously, cause you've been drinking. You can't, you can't fly. So we took the day off and there was other times, just little things we'd go out, um, kind of like how I described, you know, people flying sideways with, uh, flying in the bag. We made up like just a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, like took Oak tag and wrote numbers one through 10 on, on various ones. So we sit there and grade everybody's landing and, and, uh, you know, just little things like that. We'd always pick at each other, but, you know, for the most part, when you get into that, into the Apache program, it's just, you have no life, really. I mean, you, you break loose on the weekends and stuff and you have fun where you can, but there's just so much studying because it's just such an, a, an advanced aircraft to understand it all. I mean, it takes a lifetime. So, um, you know, most of flight school, I was studying most of flight school. I broke loose when I can, but yeah. <laughs> My career path was a little bit different because out of flight school, I left and my first assignment was actually in Korea. And so the way that you fight in Korea versus the way that you fight in Iraq or Afghanistan are completely different, completely different tactics, mindset, everything. Now I look back and I think that was definitely a positive going to Korea first because you learn that that side of the fight, which is really what the Apache was originally designed for was that type of mission, you know, uh, going army to army and, 
you know, you're hovering and you're, you're firing that way and you're moving around. It wasn't as kinetic as what it is in Afghanistan, um, in Iraq. But so I got done with Korea and I ended up in Savannah and I knew that I was going to deploy. Um, but for me going from that mindset, more of a traditional battlefield type of mindset to, uh, a more of a kinetic battlefield, like what Iraq and Afghanistan was, I felt I was behind the power curve at first when I first got to Savannah and trying to catch up because now I'm working with people that have already deployed um, a couple times. Um, and so their knowledge base was a lot better on that side of the house than, than what I had. So I had a lot of catch up to do. Um, and especially in Afghanistan, because now flying an Apache in Afghanistan, just from the capabilities of the aircraft, as far as power goes and your limitations was definitely a concern. So, cause once you weigh that aircraft down and it's in the middle of summer in Afghanistan, you don't have a lot of power. Um, so in preparation to go to that, we did a lot of training as far as, you know, working with the JTAGs, um, working with other services. It was kind of nice being in Savannah cause you had, uh, Beaufort, uh, just to the North, they had the Marine Corps air station there. Uh, so we got to work with those guys. Um, I'm back in Savannah and I still know most of my Ranger buddies that are still across the street. So, um, we would still work with those guys quite a bit. And a lot of those guys I still knew, um, which worked out really good. And I, I ended up supporting all those guys again, um, downrange, which was fairly nice to go from the ground side to the air side. But it's a little different because on the special operations side, you generally only deploy for about three months at a time versus I believe on that deployment, it was, that was, uh, oh, I think a 15 month deployment on that one. So I rotated through every Ranger, <laughs> uh, every Ranger uh, battalion uh, that came through. So it, it really went full circle and it, yeah, so it was kind of nice. So I knew a lot of the guys, um, you know, those guys that I was, you know, an E4, E5 with, are now, you know, squad leaders, platoon sergeants, uh, first sergeants, um, up to sergeant majors. The guys that I grew up with um, that were still there, you know, the that are still JTACs and everything. It was really cool working with them again um, up in the air versus on the ground. And so that's, I think, one thing that was an advantage was understanding how those units operate um, and their terminology, uh, really helped out a lot. And so a lot of the missions that I did on that deployment were in direct support of the special operations side of the house, which, which was pretty cool because it was almost like giving back to the unit that I served with, um, again. So it was pretty cool. Um, we also did a lot of, uh, um, high altitude work out West. Um, and then we would send the individual pilots to, uh, what we call HATS uh, training. Uh, yeah, high altitude aviation training strategy is what it stood for out in uh, Eagle, Colorado. And so uh, uh, flying uh, OH-58 uh, Alpha Chuck aircraft. So for somebody like me taking off, we had no OG power, but yet I could hover above a uh, basically a cliff face at 25% torque utilizing the winds. And so basically it's a really good mountain flying course. So um, the amount of training that went in before we left, was actually really good. And so it prepped us pretty good for uh, that deployment in 2009-2010 uh, into Afghanistan. Hello everyone. 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. So basically what happened is, is they take the battalion, um, or really they take the whole combat aviation brigade and they break them up into task forces. So you could have a, an Apache battalion commander, but he's running, you know, each battalion commander would have Blackhawks, Chinooks, Apache. So they're their own task force. And then they would split that task force up. And on that deployment, uh, I was in uh, RC East um, out of uh, Fobshank. Um, and Fobshank sits at, uh, I want to say it's about 7,200 feet. So you're already sitting pretty high. Uh, we had another unit in uh, Bagram, another unit down in. Uh, Salerno, and then another unit over in uh, Jalalabad. Most of my time is all pretty much Eastern Afghanistan. And that's where a lot of the fighting took place was over in Eastern Afghanistan, um, up in the mountains. I spent most of my time at night and every now and then I would be able to take a day shift, um, which was really cool because it's like, wow, I can actually see everything now when I go out and fly. And I'll never forget, I liked being on QRF. Um, which was a quick reaction force. And basically we'd be sitting in a trailer and the phone would ring, we call it the bat phone. And I would automatically send everybody out to the aircraft. They grab the crew chiefs. Um, I'm getting the freak, the call sign and the grid for the location of wherever the troops in contact is at. And I remember taking off and it wasn't very far North of Fob Shank. And, you know, you get to see a lot of, IEDs and the aftermath and stuff. And I remember I got this call. I was in the air in about four and a half minutes, um, took off and I could see the smoke out in the distance. And I got up with the guy on the ground and it was an E7. He, he's just hysterical. And he had hit uh, an IED and it was the biggest one that I've probably ever seen because the MRAP was just gone. I mean, it was the cab pretty much from the back of the cab forward was just gone, which usually doesn't happen. Um, so it was pretty big, but that one, I think, uh, they lost everybody in that squad except for uh, two people, I believe. So that one sticks out. Um, there was another, 
another one that that really sticks out it was uh i was working with uh, i can't remember which ranger battalion it was but anyway they were on the ground and it was one of those nights in afghanistan that's really it was a full moon and on top of that it was it had just gotten done snowing and you had it snowed like six or seven inches of snow and it's just so you just got fresh powder up in the mountains and so with the full moon bouncing off of that snow it's almost like flying daytime it's actually kind of hard to fly because your eyes are kind of fighting you know should i be using the flare or can i fly unaided and uh everything went good on this subjective i had uh it was me and my wingman, the Georgia National Guard Chinook guys, which were some of the best pilots I've ever seen that were supporting us um, on that tour. They went in, they dropped them off, no problems. They went back to the FOB. We stayed overhead until the uh, insertion was done. And then I think we came back at a predetermined time, but um, they were getting ready for exfil. So they start leaving the objective and um, they're in what we call PZ posture. So they're already, they've left the objective. They're down by this road down along highway one and the chinooks are getting ready to come in and and uh, they have left fob shank and and they're probably about 20 minutes out and then everything just opened up and basically there's a knoll along this road basically just a high point and it's got a bunch of trenches in it and it was basically a checkpoint for um the uh, a and p the army the army national guard guys um or i'm sorry the a and a the the national army over there. So anyway, they just unleash and just start shooting up this unit pretty good. And, you know, as it turns out, it wasn't them. It was the Taliban that come in and, and, uh, basically taken over. And so we go in and it's almost kind of like the movies, the tracers start coming in at the aircraft and me and my wingman, we just start coming in and we aligned with the trenches and we just come in laying 30 millimeter and, and rockets down through the trenches. And I remember when my wingman pulling off and uh, the tracer fire was just all over him. And so I call him on the radio and he's he's breaking off and, and then I'm coming in and then the tracers just kind of start falling over <laughs> onto my aircraft. And make a long story short, we basically neutralized everything that was there. But that that went on for a while um that battle went on for a little while and to the point where at some point you have to stop and get gas you know otherwise you're going to crash well the dilemma um is always you never want to leave the ground guys i don't have assets to come in and relieve me um so i made the decision to send him back my wingman back on his own to get gas um which is really a a kind of a rarity because you don't want to be flying around by yourself in afghanistan he gets gas he comes back um, relieves me. I go back to get gas and I remember I didn't think I was going to make it. I think I pushed it too far in the back of my mind. I'm like, I'm going to crash. I'm not going to make it. And I landed, um, at five shank with 110 pounds of gas, which is nothing. Um, so how I didn't flame out the aircraft, I have no idea. Um, landed, I hopped out while they're fueling and I helped loading everything up. Cause I was about, uh, Winchester at that time flew back. By the time I got back there, they had just picked up everybody to include the wounded and then and then we're off uh um off site at that point and came back and you know it was your adrenaline kind of starts to go down and you fill out the paperwork and go eat some breakfast and go to bed we would generally get fairly close i didn't like especially if i've got ground guys around um 
You know, I would I would still be shooting usually about with the gun and rockets. I would probably say an average of probably fifteen to seventeen hundred meters, something like that. There's been times um, where it was no kidding, uh, danger close. I've definitely had a few of those on that same deployment. Actually, I'm sorry, that was a that was another deployment. But uh, there were times shooting danger close where it was. I literally get their initials and they try to bury themselves in the dirt as much as they can because that's how close it would get. There were times of danger close, but um, if it was if I was shooting danger close, I would I would come in closer to the target um, just so it minimizes any error in the gun. So. Yeah. We had received a troops in contact call and it was a Navy SEAL team uh, that we would uh, generally work with uh, to the north of the FOB. So we're, we're out there. They come in, they give us the call. It, and I remember it took about 40 or 45 minutes just to fly to get there because in 2013, you got to realize things were starting to wind down a little bit. So we didn't have as many assets in the area. So it wasn't uncommon for an Apache crew to fly 40, 45 minutes just to get someplace. And so the problem with that is now you're limited on fuel and time. I remember I got there and I, I kept trying to get a hold of them and I finally get a hold of them and you can hear the, the rounds going off when they key the mic, kind of like in the movies, the, the Vietnam movies when they're keying the mic and the commander can hear all the rounds and stuff and the screams and stuff in the background. And that's what it was like. Um, and so they told me exactly where they were, exactly where the bad guys were. And in, and in this case, they were actually in, I don't want to call it a trench system, but the way that this wadi um, had formed, it really was kind of trenches. And so they were really dug in. I had my wingman. Um, I get on site. He climbs up to give an update to the talk that we had arrived on station. And it happened so fast that I found them there laying as flat as possible on the ground and you can see the rounds kind of hitting in front of them and all around them the bad guys were probably about 30 to 40 meters away and so anytime you're doing a danger close there's basically a 10 percent probability of hit of hitting a friendly um i've been retired now long enough i can't remember what the danger close range is <laughs> of the 30 millimeter cannon but i know it was pretty close um and so when you're doing a danger close, I advise them, hey, this is a danger close uh, shot. And I believe it was 150 meters, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you have to get that ground force commander's approval, and he'll give his initials saying that he approves the that level of risk. And so, you know, I told him I was coming in hot. And as soon as I got on scene, this is all transpiring in, in route. The wingman climbs up to call. He was oblivious to what kind of what was going on, and it's not his fault. He was just on with the talk climbing up, talking at when all this was taking place. So he didn't even know that I was shooting at the time. And I literally just came in. Normally I do an orbit, about a three kilometer orbit to get gain situation awareness. And this, I just went straight in and just started laying uh, 30 millimeter right down uh, inside the wadis. The optics on, on that Apache are really good. So just to kind of give you an idea, um, even from that far away, if they've got buttons on a shirt, I can pretty much almost count them. I could tell that they were military age males, you know, with weapons, what they were wearing. Did they have hats? I mean, it's pretty detailed. Uh, and you can tell that from pretty far out. So normally you can tell that from kilometers away. Anytime I, I ever had a new unit 
come in. And, and when I say, you know, more on the special operations side, because that's generally who I dealt with, we always, we brought them into the FOB and we discussed like emergency extraction, um, things of that nature. And so normally like on an Apache, you can fit uh, two people on each side of the aircraft. Um, and basically most special operators have a belt that, so they can tie themselves to an aircraft and they'll snap link into the aircraft. Um, and so what will happen is, is they can hop on the side of the aircraft, take that tether off their belt and snap link into the side of the aircraft onto uh, like one of the handles just as a safety measure. And then they can prop their feet up on, uh, on the missile racks and they're not going to go anywhere. The side of the Apache is big enough that it's like sitting in a chair. So unless you're going to go out and pull negative G's or something like that, they're not going to go anywhere. Um, and so the way that we would teach them, we would teach them how to get on. They even had a safety guy that went up and and made sure every, everything was good. And some of these, we would actually practice this. Um, we called them spur rides. We would actually practice this stateside before going overseas. And this has been done before. Um, it's even been done to the point where they've kicked the pilot out of the front seat, put him on the side of the aircraft and put the wounded into the front and then strapped him down with the seat belts that's also been done. But in this particular case, it was an operation with another SEAL team south of Kabul. And for whatever reason around that area, the communications were always a problem. Both satellite communications um, and radio communications were always a problem. So I couldn't get a hold of anybody. Um, there was wounded on the ground. Um, the sensitive, uh, the, the SSE, basically the site survey that they did indicated um, that there was also a high value target um, at that location and high value target generally the criteria changes but it's generally one of the top 25 most wanted and i had eyes on the guy that left the building and so we ended up going down and i actually had my wingman do it um, as i was overhead tracking um, the squirter is what we would call it and trying to get comms with uh, the talk and so i approved them to go down and uh the video had it really good i mean they did it just like what we showed them two on each side of them had a safety guy come up make sure everything were, was good and we basically flew them about two miles away dropped them off in order to to get this guy and they made two turns to drop him off now when the adrenaline's pumping and everything's going on and you're laying out the facts and you're making that decision, everything, the battlefield calculus in my head make, made pretty good sense. But then when we got back and, you know, your adrenaline comes down and you're doing your after action reports and everything, you're kind of like, oh, man. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would still do it again. Uh, and I think it was still the right decision. But the consequences of that, uh, not, now at the end, nothing happened. Nothing happened to me, but the the brass wasn't too happy on that one. <laughs> so uh, that definitely made it made for some memories on that one. But uh, yeah, I don't think I fully grasped the toll that everything took on my body until I started getting close to retirement. And, you know, years earlier, before becoming a pilot, I was doing a demonstration at West Point and I fell off a fast rope. There's a knot in the rope and, uh, I fell off of that probably about 25 feet and landed on my back, spread eagle. And the consequences of just things like that and the constant running and falling off a helicopter every now and then, because it happens when you're pre-flighting and it's slick or in the winter, and just flying that much and that vibration that's going through your body constantly for those thousands of hours, you don't really feel it until 
you start winding down and about that time of retirement, and then you realize just how much abuse your body's taken compared to your peers, like in the civilian world. So after I retired and I showed up in the civilian world, it's like, man, these guys are my same age. It's like, they're going out and running marathons and stuff. It's like, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way I could do that. But then also the toll, just the mental toll that it's also taken, um, it's different for each person. Um, here's a case in point. In, uh, in 2017, I went to nine funerals, all of which were suicide. And out of the nine, seven of them were military people that I worked with, that we had all done the same things. We had all seen the same things. But for whatever reason, those seven people reacted differently than what I did. And now don't get me wrong, I still have my demons. And I think everybody does, but everybody's different. And, you know, it's real easy to to sit there and say, well, why didn't they just pick up the phone? And that one I still haven't figured out. Um, you know, I don't know if it's an ego thing or if it's, um, you know, what it is. I don't know. But uh, it's definitely different uh, for everybody. You know, for me, do I still think of a lot of things? Yep. You know, there's nights that I don't sleep very good or whatnot. But I think that I've been able to curb some of those challenges, I guess, by just staying busy and going to the gym and, and sitting down and, and talking to other people that were there and doing that. I think that if you sit there and you keep all that stuff inside, it's, you're never going to get better. But I think one of the bigger concerns is there's nobody to talk to on the civilian side. So when I go to work, nobody there has, has done the same things that I've done. So for me to talk to them, they think it's a really cool story. Well, for me, it's not a cool story. <laughs> you know, it's something that I've got to deal with um, on a personal level. So I don't really talk to them about that. I don't talk to my spouse about really anything because she's not going to understand. So I think especially once you retire or you get out, I think that burden just kind of keeps weighing you down and weighing you down and weighing you down. But just with the mentality that we have, nobody wants to go go seek help. You know, and nobody wants that on their VA records. So, yeah. If you're in the military, you know, embrace it while you've got it. I didn't realize coming out of the military just how further ahead I was compared to my civilian counterparts. And it's not a ding against them. It's just you're just so immersed in leadership more than you know. I guess because starting as a private all the way up to whether you're a W4, W5, a general, whatever, it's just one challenge after the next, after the next, after the next, and it really sets you up for success on, on the outside. But then along with that, since I've been on the outside, I've also worked to do a lot of leadership mentorship sort of things on the civilian side, which has really helped improve the organization. So you don't really know what you have until you get out of that environment. And it's really scary to get out, but... Um, it's worth it. It's worth it. Embrace it and get out and and live the life you want to live. That was David Lewis. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. 
Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.